Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of international exploration, agents against the supernatural, and traveling to amazing worlds and getting stuck there and living the rest of your life sometimes. But mostly having wild adventures in crazy places that you love to tell stories about. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore these strange worlds. This week, we're discussing subject matter experts or NPCs that are in your campaign to do jobs that your player characters are not supposed to do and how to keep them from being more important or more interesting than your player characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, John, you talked about that you were about to start a campaign about having the players be companions to Sherlock Holmes. In my current Fringeworthy playtest, players are on Victorian Earth, and I gave him a Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is a rule that was created by the great writer Chekhov, who says, if you show a gun in the first scene, you must inevitably use that gun someplace in your story. In one of the um, previous ventures on Victorian Earth, I mentioned that Sherlock Holmes was a real person, not a fictional character. So having said that, I realized, having said that Sherlock Holmes is a real person, they're going to have to meet him. And I realized Sherlock Holmes can outshine everyone like a beacon. And I'm really trying to determine how to have Sherlock Holmes in the adventure without him actually being the boss monster of the adventure, so to speak. So he basically, so Sherlock Holmes does not actually take over the adventure and solve it. Well, Trav, why don't you explain to our listeners why these subject matters experts exist? Why are they needed in the story at all? Mm-hmm. There are certain times in a campaign adventure where, let's face it, your PCs aren't going to have the skill set really necessary to answer something. Let's say you're running a predetermined module, and you look and you go, oh, I have four characters and they don't know this skill. Oh, there's an NPC I can put in. Through plot exposition, and you got to do that correctly because there are times that just your players will just shake their head and go, really? You're just handing it to... I mean, through the interaction between the characters and the NPCs, they learn this information to help them get them along on the adventure. Basically, it's a a bridge to the next scene, this person. And like John said, Sherlock Holmes, yeah, he's, well, Sherlock Holmes. As far as investigative goes, yeah, he's going to, you know, okay, bing, 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 I got the answer. A suggestion, John? Sherlock Holmes didn't know everything. You can look in various things, and there are, because I've, I just bought the book, matter of fact, at Conclave, where I was at two weeks ago, Sherlock Holmes for Dummies. And there is a list of stuff that he vehemently knows, and there's things that he has no clue about. In the books and in the, in the BBC series of Modern Day Sherlock, he didn't even know that the Earth revolved around the sun. So he does not know everything. He is not omniscient. There are things that he is incredibly ignorant of. So, for Sherlock Holmes, that would balance out. You could sit there and bring that into play, you know, something that the player characters would know that, and of course, Holmes, how he is, he's just like, that doesn't matter to me. That's not important to what I do. It's irrelevant, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then one thought was that, well, first off, he's a fictional character. Now, his his adventures have definitely been different on Victorian Earth because it's more of a steampunk universe than what the Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. But you know what? All those books, all those adventures he had, he had. The players can actually pull up information about the adventure they're about to have if if they can find it. (laughs) (laughs) And they look and go, by the way, Reichenbach Falls... Don't go there. I hear it's not all that good of a place. <laughs> well, sadly, actually, in this in the, in the setting, it's in the 1897. He's already been. Oh, well, okay. 
you could have all the stories be done, just add a little steampunk tweak here and there, and yeah, it, it means... Jay used to say, rub off the serial number. Yeah. Right. And London is a big place, okay? There's a lot of stuff going on in London. Sherlock Holmes, he may have solved some crimes, but he didn't solve all the crimes. He can't be a hundred places at once. He was a consulting detective. He was called for when the police were out of their league, when it was just something that was beyond their brain power. Then they called him. Right, but there could also be other things beyond their league that was going on at the same time. So Sherlock Holmes is over here taking care of business on this case. This doesn't mean there isn't another case that you guys could be dealing with, maybe going back and consulting with him from time to time. He might give you some useful information, but he's still busy with the case he's working. Yeah. I did give myself double the trouble, though. Of course, the first person they meet is not Sherlock Holmes. They meet his brother, Mycroft. Because they're dealing with the crown. Yeah, Mycroft would be involved with Tess. Oh, yes, definitely. And Mycroft hears them talk, hears their accents, and goes, Oh, my brother would just love to meet you. You would be a puzzle he would love to figure out. There's also times when having such a character is essential. This goes all the way back to the dawn of role-playing in D&D. Okay, how many times have you been in groups where nobody wanted to play the cleric? But everybody wants the cleric's healing, right? And in first edition D&D, if you didn't have a cleric, unless you had a very generous GM who would just throw in bottles of healing at you, it was impossible for you to survive very long. And so usually what happened is that there would be this NPC cleric who just be happily available and might be paid a certain price for his participation. And he would toddle along as a mobile first aid kid, healing where needed, but otherwise pretty much not participating in the adventure. Yeah, I did that in the, the game at Conclave I ran, that the cleric was the NPC, and I let the players play the more dramatic characters, the people who were going out and doing stuff. Hi, I'm Phineas. I'll be your healer or along with you on your trip, you know, that type of thing. And I'm the designated wound closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't scream so much. You know, this hot irons is searing the wound clothes. Let me get my leash back. Oh, my leash got away. Let me get it back here. Yeah. <laughs> it fell down that grate. You better go after and fetch it. Ah. Yeah. The NPC has always traditionally been used as a foil by the GM. But this is where we have to start being careful because when they stop being useful and start being spotlight stealers, that's when you have to be careful. There's a rule in my old Sunday night group, which has since evolved into the two groups that I'm in, the one I run and the one I play in. PCs are the stars of the show. NPCs are the guest stars. And you never let the guest star on a TV show outshine the stars of the show. Except momentarily. Well, yeah, they might have their little bit of spotlight to show, hey, I'm here, I do this, I'm the token, fill in the blank, I'm done. Bureau 13 is a great place to have these kind of guest star NPCs because you're constantly running into situations where you're creating false identities of which none of the player characters are. And so being able to have an expert on call on a headset who can field answers through your headset so you can keep up your identity or someone to hack into a computer system for you or break it, break that lock that you really need to get into, which the characters themselves may not have any skill in doing, that's really important. That keeps the adventure going because the last thing you want is the adventure to come to a screeching halt because you don't have a particular skill or a skill at a high enough level to succeed at what it is you're trying to do. I have a perfect example of an SME then. The movie Constantine. There's the character Beeman, the guy, he was like a modern-day alchemist. He had, oh, I've got this dragon's fire here, and he's there showing John Constantine all these various things of magic origin that he was showing to Keanu Reeves' character to help him out on his cases. So yeah, that would be a very good example of an SME. In Bureau 13, we actually have one, but only if you're in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Offadile, otherwise known as Doc Croc, who is the, a veritable font of information about the paranormal. In fact, the description is, he will gladly deluge you with a torrent information for endless hours. <laughs> Right. Uh, he, he is the example of an SME who basically knows more than you do. Right. And, of course, it may take hours for him to finally get to the point. Yes. 
that's good to have those kinds of characters. If you have a character that is very helpful, but he has some undesirable characteristics, it also keeps them from being overused by the players. Wow, Sherlock Holmes fits in that perfectly. Yeah, he knows all these things, but he also can be an arrogant jerk. I was about to use an alliterative term, but jerk will do nicely. Oh, he's got Asperger's syndrome up the yin yang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That that's pretty much what they've been saying. He is that he's an Aspie because he was that good. He just had that above and beyond all of you type attitude. That's a real good way to balance him out. It's like you know he's got this good point, this bad pointing. And so it's really important for the GM to think about this, plan ahead on this before they ever get to the actual game. If they have a useful, repetitive mechanism for bringing these characters in and out is also very, very helpful so that the player characters don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time, a lot of game time, trying to find these subject matter experts when they need them. Well, yeah, Bureau 13 is really good for that because, okay, we need an expert on this. Call back and, you know, leave a message and have them sent here. And they could call anywhere in the country, or they can call local to wherever it is. Let's say you're up in New England. Now, in Bureau 13D20, and this is yet like so many people in Bureau 13D20, based on a real person, my one former protege, Sarah. She is, in the game, an expert on New England flora and fauna, cryptozoology. Uh, she beat a spawn of Cthulhu with a weed whacker and so got into the Bureau as a contact that way. And if you need to know those type of things and you're in the New England area, the NPC of Sarah Bunker would be somebody that you would call. Now, yeah, she knows all this, but the offsetting trait is that Sarah's like this in real life too. Kind of reclusive. If you don't know her, she's going to be like, okay, here's your answer. I'm going to be over here. You know, just... I mean, she's pleasant, but just not a real people person. So there's that offsetting trait that, yeah, she knows this, but there's this she got to deal with, and so it, it's a wash. Weapon experts, getaway drivers, would they fit into this category? If you're in New York? Wipachowski the cabbie. For example, you needed to drive, let's say, you know, heavy earth-moving vehicles that have, you know, a lot of specialized skill. These would be people that you'd call and bring into the adventure in some cases, you can't just wave your hand and say, well, he's not really going to know. We're just going to hire him. He's going to do his job, and it's going to be over with. And that's okay to do that. It fits within the genre in which you're doing. In the case of Fringeworthy, it's harder because in Fringeworthy, unless you're playing later in the campaign where there's lots and lots of Fringeworthy, uh, you're more or less thrown upon your own devices or finding somebody in the world in which you're going to which has these abilities. I'm not quite sure how well subject matter experts would be used other than, like, say, going back and doing research before you go. If that was done in Fringeworthy, I think that would all be part of the exposition before you went out. You know, it's contacted all these subject matter experts. And so this is the proper kind of garb you're supposed to be wearing in late uh, September in Rome. This is the uh, a proper kind of sword you should be using. Oh, and this particular sword technique, which we're going to teach to your weapon specialists, they've never seen before in that culture. Therefore, it might give you a plus one bonus whenever you get into battle against people who use traditional type weaponry because you know they're not going to be expecting it. So there's ways of that these subject matter experts can be used without, even if they're like somebody who's in combat and type stuff, that doesn't impact the characters when they go out to do the job in a negative sense of stealing the spotlight from them. One of the plot point adventures I've written for Fringeworthy, it involves such a person. I wrote such that he's more of a help. He won't actually do the work for you. But if you, if you contact him and get him on your side, he will help you. But unfortunately, this is the plot point adventure, so I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who's listening. Yeah, there's various ways of doing that. I mean, I've played adventures where I've made un- I made people who are very knowledgeable, but they're unreliable. I think it's a great idea for these subject matter experts to be really colorful and have very distinct characteristics. But the one thing we want to watch out for, and it's, it's the same idea, we don't want it to be the GM's favorite NPC. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've all had them, right? These are almost as bad as the GM's favorite villain, whom you cannot defeat. 
You can scare off. He will run, scutter off into the woodwork with his secret jetpack or opening door or secret gas jet of, of causing invisibility to him so he can escape. The subject matter expert, I've seen GMs do everything they can to bring that NPC into the next adventure <laughs> just because they love him so much. Well, like in a D&D game, let's say you go back to your little town that you're in and there is the one local herbalist. And he makes the potions, and he is a part-time healer. Yeah, you know, if you're not going to sit there and ram him down the character's throat, but if he is actually a part of the town, he has a purpose. He not only is there just to bring in for the sake of bringing in, but also because he's like the, the town's resident expert on the local fauna. Yeah, then that's okay. And I mean, as long as the adventure is there and the part where you need him is there, that's fine. But if a GM is going out of his way, like Bruce just said, in order to bring this guy in... Like Elminster. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> Elminster, I think, is probably one of the most classic examples of a, of a character that keeps reappearing, no matter what. Yeah, and, and in that case, then, your players are going to hear the stretching noise that the GM is going to do in order to bring this character back. And the suspension of your the player's disbelief will be gone. SME, in D&D, there's plenty of them. I mean, they're supposed to be there to help move the plot along. They're supposed to be there to give you the hook into the next part of the adventure or the missing piece of information. Yeah, they're transitory. They help the, they help the adventure along, yes. And that's all they should ever be. If they get beyond that, then I think it's probably a good idea for one of the players to adopt that character and start playing it. The players love that NPC so much <laughs> that they want that guy to be there, that woman to be there time and time again. They're even going out of their way to go visit them. That subject matter expert needs to become a player character so that they can travel with them <laughs> and have more of a reason to be interacting with them. Somebody gets to play that exciting character that everyone seems to love so much. Yeah, I mean, I actually had that in my very first D&D game when the NPCs became so popular and so such a good door opener. This is an old D&D term, door openers. It's a guy with 18 double lot strength. He became a PC. Now, the one thing we have to be real careful about is in the case of where you have a subject matter expert who truly got uber levels of this ability. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Ray Robertson. Yeah, Ray Robertson. I mean, can you imagine somebody playing Ray Robertson? Hmm. <laughs> The candy store. What do you got for us this time, Ray, as the adventure begins? Oh, yeah. And he opens the 13th pocket and pulls out, you know, it's Felix with his bag of tricks. Yeah. I've seen players gaming the system, gaming the GM, who do that, where they say, well, we really want so-and-so because they know that so-and-so has always had what they need in the past and will always have what they need. If we need someone to hack into... The DOD, oh, no problem. We need this guy, and he'll do it because every time in the past, the GM has used him or her as a method of moving the plot along. So therefore, they're going to look rather askance if this person shows up and then starts failing because the GM's tired of them bypassing his plot by just bringing in someone who could just shoot the Mideast warrior who's threatening the guy with the whip. We mentioned this before in an earlier one where you've designed your adventure such that it only has one solution and one way to the solution. Yeah, if you design it so that there's only one way to the solution, yeah, you can end up either handing it to them or watching them flail around and trying to figure out how to solve the problem without actually having the knowledge or the character capable of doing it. Well, Bruce has mentioned before on various podcasts the three-out rule. Matter of fact, we might as well just call it the Bruce Shepard three-out rule. Just as of right here and now, give your players three different methods of solving a problem. Now, I've taken that on myself. I've started using it and record the most likely one that the characters that I know of their skills, okay, this is the most likely way they do it. What are two other ways? And of course, I've got players that have been gaming. Eric on my show has been gaming two years longer than me. So there are often times he'll be, and I'll just be sitting there like, ah, damn it, he got me. You know? <laughs> so, but yeah, make sure three outs, three different paths to the same conclusion. 
And I try to get across to my players that you should consider failure at a certain level to always be part of your adventure. Mm -hmm. Things are never always going to go your way. There's always going to be impediments. Something's going to going to be a good idea and they're not going to pan out. <laughs> you should always have faith that you're going to win through to the end if you try another tact or you double back and go a different direction. He says, don't take that as a negative thing. Take that as part of your the sense of reality that we're trying to create in the adventures that we do. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a learning experience and the characters will learn, okay, I messed up with that. How do I go about so it doesn't happen again? What's the old phrase? No plan withstands contact with human beings. If your players are smart enough or clever enough, you've had solutions A, B, and C, and they come up with Q, well, go for it. They'll assume that, oh, wow, we, we were, doing, were doing great. Well, if it solves the problem, go with Q. Yeah, give them a little bit of experience points for original thinking. That helps promote the player characters to come up with these ideas more. It's like a reward system. The rat pushes the lever and the cheese comes out. You know, after a while, the rat's going to learn, hey, if I want cheese, I push the lever. It's a little broader example, but if the players, you know, keep coming up with these wild, crazy ideas, they'll get a reward. I had one Bureau 13 team, they called themselves Team Bug Nuts because they tried such bug nut solutions to things, so that was ended up being their team name. <laughs> If your character concept does not include the idea of failure in certain areas, then that should literally be part of your character concept. They gave a very good example on one of the podcasts I was listening to when they said, let's design a game for Burn Notice. And in Burn Notice, the secondary character who's played by Bruce Campbell, he will come up with this information from his contacts. He said, if you're creating that character, he should never have to roll for this. Either this is important to the adventure, and he knows it. The information comes to him from his context, or is important to the adventure, and he doesn't hear anything about it. Yep. If this is a sort of character you want to play where they are just, as I said, uber good at something, then that's fine. Build it into the character concept. Don't roll for it. Just say, hey, this is what's going to happen. You know, the Lothario is a good example of that. Captain Kirk and his ability to seduce anything that is feminine. He never fails. He always succeeds. Now, it doesn't mean that necessarily he gets all the information he wants out of them. And usually when they find out that they're being seduced, they have a negative reaction to it. And they had a big blow. You're using me. And he goes, man, why not? You're using us. You've got my ship. But the point is, is that everyone takes that as part of his character. So if you've got a character who is the perfect locksmith, who will always break through any lock, then that should be part of your character concept. The GM should know about it, and he should plan his adventures accordingly. It shouldn't be something that somehow like, oh, yeah, I, I, they have to get through this lock, and they're going to need a level whatever to do it. And so they're going to need a subject matter expert. It's like, well, no, I'm going to bring in Freddy, and Freddy can do that. And the GM's like, Oh, okay, well, that's going to be a short adventure now. That's bad design. Let's say you're in a group where you have 15 to 20 characters, and there's five players. You know, it's a true Mission Impossible type scenario where the, you should vet with the GM whether this character is appropriate for his thing, and then you can bring that character in. Yeah. And then he's okay because he's already planned for the fact that I've run into that myself where people brought in characters, and they gained the system better than I knew. And all of a sudden, everything I was trying to do, or even situations where I was trying to drive them to a subject matter expert so they could give additional information, they're like, oh, no, we'll do it ourselves. And they go, and they just you know handle it. And then I'm like backpedaling furiously trying to figure out how am I going to get that information to them. The three ways is always a good idea because, like I said, that's a simple situation where you say, well, okay, they're not going to get the information they need from that guy because they never went to him. There's two other ways. Okay, but I'm just saying is that it, it, it's helpful to make sure that the GM doesn't need you – know, he's not planning on that subject matter extra being a linchpin to the whole adventure and they bypass it entirely or, or by using some kind of gear that – you forgot about artifacts in D&D &D is a good example of where that kind of kicks into play where 
someone gets an artifact, and it was especially important in early D&D where people were going from one campaign to another, and they would show up, and they'd say, yeah, here's my character sheet, and you wouldn't see that little thing written in four-point type on the back of their character sheet. The Hand of Vecna. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, I did it to a GM myself, not really realizing it, where he gave me a ring of telekinesis, and I was a paladin. Every time we got into a battle, I'd take a rock that was nearby, and I'd lift it up about 200 feet and drop it on the monster doing 22d6 damage. Rock on. <laughs> yeah, he'd get the save for half, and he's like, well, no, you're a paladin. You should be in the front swinging that sword of yours and all this stuff. I said, my sword does a d8 plus 10 damage, and the rock does 22d6 I always hit with it because I can guide it down and, you, and you're rolling a save for half damage and that's it. I mean, come on, you know, why would I not use the rock? And the next time he ran the adventure, because this was at a uh, convention and he was running multiple demos of it, he took that ring away. And that was right. He was right to do it. I, mean, I was overshadowing all the other characters. They were like me. They were like the way my character was supposed to be, where they were doing a D10 plus five damage and the magic user had like two fireballs he could use doing 366 or whatever and here i come in oh no, no hold on to those fireballs bam bam you, you want to tell the player oh by the way there's charges yeah oh you've burned up three charges so far right Do you think you have any more yeah you have 10 charges you used up four now you only have six left are you really sure you want to use that rock on that orc I pretty much ruined his adventure. I was a bad player. Because we got to the castle, and he said, okay, you're at the castle. Now you got to go into the castle and fight. You can't use that ring. And I said, well, where are we trying to get to? He says, you're trying to get to the second floor over there on the corner. And I said, let me just take this rock and batter that corner of the castle into rubble. Does that solve our quest? Did we complete it? And he said, I'm just not going to let you do that. <laughs> I'm like going, bad GM, bad GM, you know. And he wasn't. It was me. I was the bad player. And I'm willing to admit it now. <laughs> I was at Gen Con, and I was young. I was a star. I was a superstar. And I didn't want to give up that spotlight one bit. And that wasn't right. He was a munchkin. I really was. I totally munchkinized that paladin. It was like I didn't even need armor. I stood at the back of the party. I stood 20 feet behind the back of the party. I had a 300-foot range on that ring of telekinesis. Yeah, they go by different names, folks. Men maxers, power gamers, munchkins, you know. I had totally reduced that character to a single action of lifting rocks and dropping them on things. One trick pony, yep. It was a very good trick, though. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Subject matter experts are great if they're needed, but make sure if your player is such a subject matter expert, it's okay for them to be perfect at something. I mean, in D20, that was the whole idea of feats. There's something you can do that nobody else can do because you've got the feet, like spring attack and all those other things. And I think that's a great idea. I think that helps create your character as distinct from all the other characters. But the GM's got to know about it. The GM's got to build that into his adventures. If he does, I think it's great. Well, yeah, because if you have a fighter in the D20 system, with the amount of feats that are available to a fighter... You could make three fighters, and they could be totally different. You could have the heavy weapons brawler. This guy comes in with a large club and beats things into something resembling a wet prune. You have the light-type fighter, which would be like the swashbuckler class out of Complete Warrior. Then you got the ranged expert, the guy who's picking off things with a compound longbow at 300 feet and not getting touched. They're all fighters, yet... Because of the length and breadth of feats that are out there, you can specialize. And they were very good in Dragon Magazine about making that available. So, you, you know, where you had all kinds of specialist fighters. My favorite was the brawler, the guy who just did hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, he had a feat. There's some in D20 Modern, but in regular D&D, &D, the original one, if you, had, if you tried to attack with your bare hands, then A, it only did non-lethal damage, and B, it, it triggered an attack of opportunity. So Right. These were clearly martial artists. Their attacks were considered weaponized attacks. Yeah, basically it is defeat, improved combat strike. In D20 Modern, they call it combat martial arts. But six one half a dozen of another, folks. But from that point on, then you had all kinds of things you could do. They had feats where you could do the equivalent of the monk's flurry of blows, 
you could take feats where your attacks would knock people back instead of just hitting them. D20 Modern and regular D20 through Dragon Magazine had all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. Just like in first edition, they had all kinds of NPCs that they were bringing out that were all kinds of specialists. When you're talking about fighting feats, there's one called Versatile Unarmed Strike. And it basically says you can switch on each attack because Unarmed Strike, it's bludgeoning damage. No, no, no. You can also turn it into slashing or piercing. And I'm just like, oh, that's because I've taken four years of Kung Fu, certain ways that you hit, you can make it slash or pierce. And just so I saw the feet, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that, that versatile. Yeah, that's right. Right. Versatility with players, it's a great thing because with the feats and the feet trees, you can sit there and even go on further and further tangents with what you want to do with this particular character. You may have a hand to hand fighter fine he has combat martial arts and then also give him improved grapple not only isn't in, he's into boxing let's say he also took some wrestling classes so he can get in there and do the loss and all that i don't remember if, if d20 has it but it's in present in other games it's something called connections either a, an attribute or a, an edge like savage worlds or it's something you you choose when you create your character these are npcs that you have connections to and these npc npcs can provide you with something. Information, a car. Actually, John, yes, there is. In the Good. D&D, in the Player's Handbook 2, there is a concept known as affiliations. Ah. And they give the list. As a matter of fact, I am using them now for my current campaign. Let me gain it here. The hard copy. Got it right here in my hand. It is chapter... Seven page, starts on page 163. Basically, these are groups that your PCs can go to, and in time, they can create their own. You have different criteria that gives you an affiliation score. Or hmm. the person that you're doing, you know, that you're playing as the NPC. And if they are that high, or if you are that high, where... Okay, let's say you have your own affiliation, your own group, your... Excuse me, your adventuring party has its own affiliation. And you have an allied affiliation of the local apothecary and his three daughters that take care of the shop. Well, if you have an allied affiliation and you fit their criteria, you become, let's say, the the benefit would be valued customer. And therefore, you gain a discount on certain products that this alchemist or apothecary is selling because oh you saved his daughter's life you know five years ago or whatever so yeah that affiliations it's in the player's handbook too in the second world source book which i also use it's a cross genre book where you can mix fantasy and modern campaigns they have something known as organizations that either you can be allied to or you can your character can join them and they have favors, and you can get magic items at a lower cost. And you can get affiliations with other organizations. And it's just that the more you join up with other affiliations or other organizations, you take a penalty mm -hmm. the more that you join. Because your connections are getting thinner and thinner, you know, friend of a friend of a friend type thing. But there are these things in D20. Yeah, and I'm actually looking at the charismatic hero class. There's a ability called Favor that allows you to call on a, a nameless NPC for a favor. It takes it does take an action point to use, but it's another way of getting information or stuff. Right, and because it has a cost involved, mm -hmm. that keeps that subject matter expert or contact or whatever it is that resource from being somebody you'll overly lean on. Oh, yeah, and in the Second World Sourcebook, there is the concept of influence points. Now, basically, it is 1,000 gold equals one influence point. In this system, it's how you buy magic items. Because after a while, wealth scores in D20 Modern get outrageous, you know, just after a while. And you can convert some of that wealth. There is a chart in the Second World Sourcebook to convert wealth to influence. You use influence to find the magic item, the artificer. If you want a high-level magic item... You're going to pay through the nose, not only for the magic item itself, but also to find the guy to make it. Oh, let's see. Boots of Teleporter, 90,000 gold pieces. One of my characters in my Friday night game, they have him. Fine. 
they got them, but they also had to pay the influence to get the level of caster to make them. You have this offset. You ha- Yeah, you have this guy who can make magic items for you, but in order to get his access and his time and effort, you have to pay an extra cost. If you are using rules, a real system that actually has a connection edge or connection trait, define what that connection does for that character. Don't leave it ambiguous. Does this connection... It's a mob boss. Does that mean you can call for a hit? Or does it mean he actually can call for information? What does that connection do for the player character? Oh, yeah. When you make your affiliation that you're going to go and deal with, and they give like maybe eight or nine different ones that you would run across in a fantasy setting, ranging in everything from government of the local nation to the thieves' guild that lives in the sewers. Each level of affiliation score, you get different benefits that all stack. If your affiliation score is to the the third highest of four benefits, you get all the preceding benefits, but at least you know how far you can go in the organization. Just like the organizations in the second world, you buy positions within the organization. Let's say in the Elven Nation, you become what they... Uh, a seven tribes partisan. You gain certain favors that you can employ the elves to let you do, like safe passage and the ability to get certain um, magic items. But still, it's defined. That's the GM's job to sit there and write this stuff out on paper and say, okay, when they when they deal with these people, they make the rolls, they pay the influence, they. They do whatever is necessary, and then they'll get these things. It's a finite resource for the influence in the Second World book. It's a finite resource. You can build it up with time whenever you get more wealth and then convert it to influence. So that means you can't do it all the time. You have to sit there and do things to gain the in order to enact this favor or gain this information or gain access to a magic item if only to even requisition it. You don't use it all the time. You don't become dependent on it. You have to do legwork in order to be able to call this favor back again. And that favor may only be available in certain locales. You might know a guy who can sell you a car. Not necessarily his car, but he can sell you a car. You can use temporarily. You might know somebody who can sell whatever you find. Not necessarily legally, but they can definitely fence. (laughs) And the important thing about defining this is so that the players understand what the limits are for that NPC. So that when the GM says, no, I'm sorry, the NPC is not available, or the NPC can't do that, they don't feel like the GM is now decided to work against them. They're, they're taking their their shiny thing that they found and have, have tarnished it or, or is just keeping it from them because he doesn't want them to have it. That's why something is good like the affiliation score in the in the player's handbook two or the influence points in the organizations for second world source book. If you use that resource, well then you can't call that favor back again until you regain more of that resource, be it your affiliation score gets rebuilt or you gain more influence through adventuring and role playing and whatnot. You're not being a jerk. It's like you used up your opportunity. You have to rebuild your social stamina, so to speak, in order to call upon this person again. It sounds like it solves a lot of the problems about keeping these these subject matter experts rare, but at the same time letting the players choose when and where they want to use them on a limited basis. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've, I've taken to use them in my campaign because, yeah, my characters are very good at what they do. They're, the whole point of the name of the team is Team Unpossible. They make the impossible possible. You can look up the term unpossible in Urban Dictionary. It's there. But even then, there's just sometimes where they're not good, and so I'll bring in SME, and I affix it to the organization or the affiliation rules, and it's like, okay, do this, pay this, and you've got this guy who will help you out. Okay, you've used up your influence, fine. You've already done it. You're going to have to find a route. And so that's where the three-out rule that Bruce... Forget it. We're just calling it the Sheffer rule. Anyways, I enact the Sheffer rule, and it's like, okay, there's another guy that they can go about and get this from. 
well, they've expended that resource. Okay, well, here's their third try. Our various games, like in Bureau 13, your character may have area-specific connections, like where he grew up. Unless you play it where he wipes his past history away, where he grew up, he may have some connections with folks that he can call on and maybe get get things out. This is something you can rope. This is definitely role-playing uh, gold at this point. You know, so you're playing the homeboy advantage. Yeah, you're playing, you, you know people like you know. If I was to go back to Michigan, I'd probably call on Richard or well, yeah, Trad there for some different kinds of assistance, depending where I want to move the body or not. I'm still not going to help you move bodies, John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, so you're you're a friend. You're not a real friend. No, not not for John. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> We said we weren't we were going to keep the character stories a minimum, but let's finish up with telling your favorite subject matter expert and how you were able to keep that subject matter expert from being totally overwhelming the, the, the party and stealing the spotlight. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that, that's a lot of them. I mean, yeah, gee, only all of us only have, what, 30 years plus gaming experience? Yeah. Exactly. As I say, your favorite. Okay, just, or just pick one. Tell you what, I'll go first. In my first D&D campaign... I decided that there was the Elven Kingdom that was in the middle of the rest of the kingdom. It was kind of like Berlin. And I said, well, these guys, you know, they've been around forever and they've got all this stuff, these artifacts and things like that that they've amassed. They should have some uber character that interacts in some way with the rest of the world. And so I created the Elven Avenger. And the Elven Avenger was a character whose job was whenever somebody did something really horrible to elves of any kind, but especially high elves, that they went out and made those people pay. And I went to the book and I basically gave them every max item, plus five rings, plus six swords, plus whatever armor, helm of teleportation, rings of invisibility, you name it. I mean, I just went through the book, artifacts, if they had them, tricked out this character to be uh, just a, a complete munchkin character. Because they were the only one. The, the Elven Kingdom said, okay, we're all individuals here, so we're not going to create an army of Elven Avengers. However, we'll create one Elven Avenger whose job is to deal with this. And so when the player characters became aware of this person, they were like, wow, there's a red dragon and we need to get rid of it? Well, let's bring in the Elven Avenger. And I'm like, well, fine, but you've got to convince the Elven Avenger that this is a crime against elves just because the dragon exists doesn't mean that they're a crime against elves and so they were hard pressed sometimes they actually got pretty creative at one time they actually created a scam they, they basically started leaving all kinds of rumors that there was this terrible beast that had, had abducted elven children and they'd found their bodies and leaving elven garments here and there and <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, peppering you know the surroundings with elven texts and stuff so it looked like the dragon or whoever it was had done this. So then they could come back with all this evidence and people from the locale that they could bring in as as extras. No, really, we this is terrible story we need to tell you. And then it'd be like, you know, the, the light would go on in the elven Avengers' eyes and says, This must not pass. And then the next thing you know, slice and dice, whatever, you know, the, the obstruction was gone. I uh, really enjoyed playing that character. First of all, it was a total brute, you know, and it was it was a female character who actually was playing the Elven Avenger. So they had this little live elf, pretty girl who, who they, you know, met as, you know, as from here to there and had a good, great interest in the party because they were obviously heroes and because they were a good source of information for her, because they would always run into the big bads wherever they went. And so she would be hearing about it. And she says, well, okay, then maybe this is something I need to be part of. And a couple of times she actually did rescue them on her own because she removed an obstruction that they had that they didn't know how to deal with. And all of a sudden it was just gone because of what she had learned. You know, she was acting independently. I, that was my favorite, the Elven Avenger. I have one, and actually it was co-created with Amber Rowe. Came to me with a character idea, and this is in the Bureau 13 campaign, my Meta campaign. This is a 3,400-year-old half-succubus born in ancient Egypt to Egyptian nobility. Adventured through the centuries, she has been to ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, Constantinople twice, once in like uh, 300 and again when it fell. 
Tibet for 700 years, the, all five of the Crusades. Source of history and magic and cryptozoology and just was there at Leonardo da Vinci's his final days, so she learned about early technology and whatnot. And so I, I told her, okay, the Bureau is going to find this woman. It's going to realize that this woman is a untapped source of history. She and I made Saren where if you can go to Bangor, Maine after you've been through the training and you want to go back for more training to brush up on your advanced history or advanced arcana or, oh, something about a particular type of magic. Like, okay, yeah, the ancient Egyptian pharaonic magic, you would go to Miss Saren's class on this. And so Amber and I have come up with all these running jokes about her traveling with this uh, Chinese dragon known as Feng Shen, who part-time student, part-time lover, part-time companion, and just it's like, oh yeah, every time you make travel plans, we come up with something new. Oh, let's go back to Constantinople and see how it's changed in 700 years. Wait a minute, what's that large boom sound? The Turks using their cannons trying to bust down the walls, or before that... Hey, let's stop by Jerusalem and see how it is. What do you mean there's an army outside the walls? We were there for 300 years. And so Saren, just with this rich history, is now used by the Bureau to train their agents further. And you have to pay. And in my system, I use their special training classes in the Second World Source book. And Saren is the teacher for those classes. So it's like, yeah, you got to pay influence. you got to make roles. And so in the in-between times of campaigns, you're in Bangor, Maine, and with the time dilation and all that, okay, you decide to take a class with Miss Saren, and if you want to role-play that time or bring her in as a NPC for a particular, oh, we have this uh, Egyptian cult that's, you know, causing trouble, and, and, well, okay, we bring in Saren, and she can give information why she was there. That's my NPC, and I have Amber to thank for that because it was originally her character I've just incorporated in my Bureau 13 campaign. So that's my favorite NPC, and as I said, she and I have plot. We, we plotted out months. Basically, the first half of this year, she and I were helping create the whole backstory of this character, and it's something she had in her head for six years and came to me for fleshing it out. That's the character, Sarah. That's my favorite SME. And I never realized that she's perfect for that term. John, yours, your favorite SME that you've used time and again. Oh, this is doing when I was running the Alternate History Travel Guide campaign. There was this group called the Cyber Squad. They were the hackers, the VR folks. And one of their tools was this special cracking program they had created called Junior. Junior started out not as an AI, but more of a smart smart program. He was smart code. We had uh, hypothesized that AI is an emergent property of, of complex systems. Well, as he kept on being used and used, he became an AI, full-fledged, full-blown AI designed to crack any system. He could kamikaze because he knew he could be rebooted from his last good save. So he was, you know, very dangerous to other AIs out there. So it was an interesting character to sort of balance Junior out with his ability to literally hack any system. As I said, the best way to do that was to give him a personality. He started developing a conscience about doing things. And also he started liking some of the other AIs he found out there and he wouldn't touch them. He wouldn't touch their systems. So that means you, if you want to crack in there, you need to find some other way of getting in there because Junior wasn't going to crack it open for you. <laughs> right. That's that's good. I like that. <laughs> they sound like great SLG Matter experts, and I hope that people out there that are listening have even better ones. And we'd love to hear about your subject matter experts because then we might incorporate them into our games and the various campaigns that we run. Please come to our Yahoo groups at groups at yahoo.com and look for Friendsworthy or Bureau 13 or FTL or our Facebook pages, Friends of TriTag Games or Fringeworthy and Bureau 13 there. We also have tritaggamers.com where we have forums and information and all kinds of resources for you. So please, you know, stop by and give us uh, all the great stories that you have because that's what those forums are for for us to share these great ideas and if you get by itunes give us a review 
and hopefully give us five stars. And if you don't like us, then give us a review anyways, because how are we going to get better if you don't want to ever tell us what they like or don't like? Yes, please. Constructive criticism, good and bad, always helps us help you bring the awesome to your games, whatever games they may be. Let us know, hey, okay, you haven't talked about this or you didn't touch on this. Fine, then we read it and future podcasts will come back and say, hey, this person asked us about this. So, yes, feedback, by all means, very important. And we're in our third year now, so we should be getting better at this. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're not, you know, uh, or if we've gotten stale, we want to know that too. So please give us feedback and participate any way that you like and send us ideas for uh, upcoming podcast topics or whatever floats your boat. We want to bring the awesome into your game. Oh, yes. If, if we get, you know, ideas from you guys, you know, just say, hey, talk up this or what about this facet of this game? Between myself, Bruce, John, and Blix, we're talking well over a century of tabletop gaming experience and working with these games and all the other games that are out there that we've collectively played and game mastered. We're going to come up with some ideas. Trust us. That that's not going to be a problem. Well, that's right, you <laughs> kids. You know, we've been around for long, and you know what? Well, Get off my lawn! Back in our day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the biggest thing that there was at the beginning of role-playing is there was a sense of adventure, the sense that we were pioneers, that nobody had ever done this before, and that the, there were no real rules. The rules were the ones we made as we went along. And so we want to constantly be pushing the edges of the rules that exist. We want to break, not the rules that are good, but break out of the uh, ideas that this is the only way of doing it. And that's what this podcast is partially about. So we like your help, and we hope that we're doing that for you. And we're going to be back next week to do that. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.